I read some words from an individual that I thought were interesting, that I thought I would just begin the service reading them to you. And I want you not to kind of, you know, you, you could take this and kind of react to it, but I'm asking you to hold it here. Uh, this is not an indictment on this church or in any way, but it, it, it's this person's words. And I want you to hear there's some truth to it. He says he, he basically begins. He says the big idea of Jesus was this. He was he came in. And at one point he asked, who am I? And they and Peter said, you're Christ. And, and he said, good for you, Peter. You're the rock. And on this, he said, on, on this confession of faith, but not just words that were said, but on the word, the revelation of God that changes lives, that bring about lives that look like Jesus. Upon this, I will build my church, which really in, in, in many, uh, if you get back to its root meanings, it's this idea of little platoons. It's almost like the Roman had, Romans had little platoons all around the world that impacted the areas they were at. He, in a sense, is saying Jesus died not just for you and for me individually, but he died to co- collectively bring together these little platoons around the world that would impact the very community in which they live. And he makes these statements. If building churches was the dream of Jesus, these little platoons, why, then why aren't we being more productive? What's the problem? The problem rests, in his opinion, in the fact that most evangelical churches exist for themselves. The church, in many places, has developed a club mentality whose primary purpose has become making its members happy. It's easy to look Christian to other believers through programs and buildings and budgets. But members remain stagnant and stifled because they have been secluded from the church's primary task of building bridges to the unbelieving world around them. Doomed to irrelevance and frustration is the church that functions with any design that is not focused on building bridges to the community in which they live. The bridge that is desperately needed will never be constructed merely on truth alone. Faithfully preaching the word might be foundational, but the bridge must be securely suspended So if the bridge, in a sense, is is Jesus, the truth and his grace, the bridge, he says, must be suspended by the great these two greats that Jesus called the church. to. He calls them the great commandment, love. That's one suspension of it. The other is the great commission, which means to go out and to make people who live and look and love like Jesus. And then he writes, what importance does the Bible give to good works? Because that seems to be important, he says. It says we must let others see our good deeds. It says in God's word, we must let love our enemies and do good to them. It says we must never grow weary of doing good and that we must be rich in good deeds and that we're even to spur others who are believers to engage in good deeds. And without these evidences, the church will remain an impotent force. And here's the quote I want you to think about, and we're going to pray just in a moment, and I want you to just, in this prayer, just dwell upon this. He says, what the world waits to see is whether what we have is better than what they have. What the world waits to see, where you work, where you go to school, the community you live, what your children want to see is what you have is better than what they have. Let's pray. Father, whether all that is said in this is true, one thing is true, and that is that you 
sent your son Jesus to set people free by your love so that we could love and do that which is good right where we live. And there really is a world waiting to see that. How are we to engage in that God as a people? Would you speak and be present to this message, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me read that again. What the world waits to see is whether what we have is better than what they have. You know, in essence, really, when I read this little letter of Titus, that's exactly what Paul is stating to Titus about the people who lived in Crete, whom these three chapters, these three pages of letter is all about. In Titus chapter 2, verses 5 through 12, he ends verse 14 by giving the example of Christ, but he begins and he says in chapter 2:15, These then are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. And you need to underline this again, to be ready to do whatever is good. I kind of call it spring-loaded goodness. To slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. True humility toward all men. The message says it this way, and I'll read that little part in verse 14, right before verses, verse 15 in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice to free us from a dark, rebellious life into this good, pure life, making us a people he can be proud of. And again, underline, energetic in goodness. I like the way he puts it, energetic in goodness. Tell them all this. Build up their courage and discipline them if they get out of line. You're in charge. Don't let anybody put you down. Remind the people to respect the government, to be law-abiding, always ready to lend a helping hand. No insults, no fights. God's people should be big-hearted and courteous. That's pretty simple. Uh, that's a pretty simple charge, and I really don't even have to preach much more about that. That's, you know, that's right out there plain before our eyes. But what I find is interesting is that in this passage of Scripture, you'll find that he, he gives these challenges in verse 15, and then he moves right into the fact of, here you people are to be good citizens. I want you to live in such a way that you impact the very community that you're a part of. But before we do that, let's just do a quick review. Go back to verse 15. Because really, verse 15, to understand this transition, because it really transitions from chapter 2 into chapter 3, and there are two really different thoughts that begin to occur here. He says, these then are the things you should teach. Encourage, rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. And what you need to, to kind of note there is the word these. Because he's referring back to all the instructions that he gave in chapter 2. They were particular instructions to a group of people living within a certain context that they needed to pay attention to. They were things, he could have probably named a whole bunch of different things, but those were the, the ones that he, were high, he was highlighting. And so he says in, in, in chapter 2, verse 1, here are the these that he was talking about. He says, you must teach what is in accord, verse 1 of chapter 2, with sound doctrine. 
And the, the word idea here of sound doctrine is that which is whole or wholesome. That kind of teaching that results not in puffed up people who are self-righteous, who have a lot of knowledge, who can tell you all about the Bible. He's talking about the kind of teaching that leads people to live pure lives, that seek to live under the authority of, of God and his word, and yet do so in such a way that their life is full of grace and full of love. And that their lives as they go throughout the community are are building this platform so that people are touched and experience the goodness and love of God. And through that, truth can then penetrate into their own very lives. He talks about not merely right doctrine, which we a lot of times in the church, because it's easier to be people of right doctrine than it is to be people who are gracious and loving and, and integrating all of it into our lives. He teaches about truth that leads people to love like Jesus loved, to to live like Jesus lived, to trust the Father like Jesus trusted the Father. I mean, that hits me right at home. To trust the Father the way that Jesus trusted the Father. Because, you know, so often I wish I wasn't ruled by my own fear or my insecurity. I wish I wasn't ruled by my own anxiety and concerns. I mean, that's a big call. Teach sound doctrine that leads people to trust the Father the way that... Jesus trusted the Father to live like Jesus lived, to love like Jesus loved, to live purely like Jesus lived. Paul gives instructions on how a follower should live in verse chapters 2, if you go verses 2 all the way through verse 14. He first addresses, as we looked at a few weeks back, he addresses older men, then older women, talks about younger women and younger men. And then he talks about slaves, or which in our culture and day, he's talking about people who are employed. And it has implications for employers. He's kind of hit a broad range of people here. Finally, at the end of verse 14 of chapter 2, Paul points people back to Jesus, the model, the one we should follow, the example. And he says, Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice to free us from a dark, rebellious life. This life that says, God, I'm living it the way I want. I don't care who I hurt, who I offend. I don't care what my life is like. I'm going to live it the way I want. He says, we look at the example of Jesus who offered himself to sacrifice to free us from that kind of life into this good, pure life, making us a people he can be proud of. And, and here's the kind of pride that he, that he wants to have invested in his heart. Energetic in goodness. This idea Paul gives as he goes through these details, this idea of being ready and full of energy to do that which is good. So in chapter 2, as he ends with verse 15, he then gives these final directives to Titus as a pastor to people of his, these platoons throughout Crete. He gives this directive. He says, Titus, teach these things. Titus, encourage this and other people. The idea of a positive reinforcement, you know, like if you're you're at work, you've probably been trained in this. When you see someone do good, you do what you you reinforce it by saying, good job. The idea is that when you see it in people that you are in community with in, in your family, when you see it with other people who are seeking to walk like Jesus did and you, you notice that is the idea that you want to pat them on the back and say, that was good. Do it again. And then he goes on. And he says, not only do we encourage where we see it happening, but he says, rebuke. Where it isn't happening. That's the harder part. For, well, I shouldn't say it. Some people love the rebuke, don't they? There's some professional rebukers in every congregation. 
But it's the idea that there are times we're called to say, you know what, what you're doing is not loving. What you're doing is not good. What you're doing is creating not a kind of pride in the Savior. Do you realize the perception that's coming off? Sometimes that's what I've said to people when I've had to have it work through something like that. You know, I just want you to realize you may not perceive what is how people are seeing you. But he says to do that. And then he says, don't take any lip. But be confident in what you're doing. Do it with all authority, because what you're doing is true and right and good. So leaders, and by that I mean pastors and ministry staff, elders, ABF leaders, small group leaders, commission leaders, student ministry leaders, children ministry leaders, and any kind of ministry leader or in person involved in any ministry here. My charge to you is wherever you have influence, teach this, train it. Encourage it where you see it happening and when there needs to be, rebuke it and say in very much a loving way, this is probably not what you intend. And if you are, then we got to talk even further. This raises the question, in what things, surely, what what is it that these things refer to in the general sense? Because it's easy to give detailed directives to a group, and sometimes you get lost in the forest. You know, you, you miss the forest and you just see the trees. Sometimes you see the particulars and details, and, and these are detailed kind of descriptions. But the, the main point of chapter 2 and throughout this letter, as Paul is summarizing it, he says, teach the particulars, but always keep your eye on the target. And the target was set out for us in Titus chapter 1, verse 1. So if you just go back to that, you'll see the main truth neglected by believers on the island of Crete. And I think in some ways in our world today, the main truth that so often is neglected by the church is this. Those of you who have a knowledge of truth, it is to lead to godliness. Not to pomposity and to a sense of self-righteousness. It is to lead to a place where we recognize in our heart our, our need of God and that we are people who have been touched by His goodness and as a result of having been touched by His goodness, we go out and touch others with that same goodness. It's a genuine faith that always, he says, leads to becoming and looking more like God. Real believers live attractively good lives. We are to be living illustrations of the good news. In a sense, I wrote, forget your label, whether you're evangelical, free, Baptist, Catholic, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Pentecostal, or whatever it is. But if you say you follow the designer, then let him design your life with the very goodness that he's touched you with. Here's the main point. Teach and encourage. Rebuke when necessary. As followers of Jesus, our lives should be and express goodness. You and I are to be attractive people who are, as it says in verse 14, eager to do what is good. Energetic about it. And if you look at verse 15, you'll see it follows hard on 14 because verse 15 says that we're to encourage all this. And then he says a sentence later. In verse 1, Paul reiterates this at this point. He says, be ready to do whatever is good. You know, when I first started this series, I, I had us kind of do a little run through of all these statements of good. I'm just going to give you a, a quick, you know, we're going to fly over at 40,000 feet again real quickly. In this small little letter, listen to this. In verse 1, chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, here's his point. He says, one who loves what is good. 
Chapter 1, verse 16, he contrasts the world around them and he contrasts those who claim to know God, who he says they're unfit for anything good. Chapter 2, verse 3, but teach what is good. Chapter 2, verse 7, set an example by doing what is good. With the idea being that nothing be said bad of you. Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. It's so good that people want it. Chapter 2, verse 14, a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. Chapter 3, verse 1, remind people to be ready to do whatever is good. Chapter 3, verse 8, may you be careful to devote yourselves to doing what is good. And 3.14, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is Wow, you guys got it. Sermon over. No. Be like Jesus. Author Rebecca Pifford in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World, which is a book that was written a while ago. The subtitle is Evangelism as a Way of Life. It paints the picture of an attractive life for, that people want. What, what they see in you, they want. And she paints a picture of how attractive Jesus is. Pippert says, if a disciple must first master the life of the master, then we need to grapple. We need to wrestle with this radical, accurate, and, and with penetrating ways with which the gospel reveals the person of Jesus. The Jesus of the gospel, she writes, struck me with fresh force. My first impression was that Jesus was utterly delightful. I love that. How many people, when you walk into the office or you walk home, go, wow, they're just you're delightful. How many look at your life and just go, wow, it's so good. They're just so delightful. It's interesting. She says, this is the way Jesus looked. He enjoyed people, she writes. He liked to go to parties and to weddings. He was the kind of man people invited, actually invited to dinner. And he actually came. He went to where the people lived. Jesus established intimacy with people quickly. Partly it was because he was an open person, very authentic and real. But also because he understood people and wanted to establish rapport. He let people know that he had a sense of who they were and that he actually appreciated them. How often can you say, people just go, boy, you know, Kevin appreciates me. I, I, I'm, you know, all these indictments are at myself as well, okay? So I'm not pointing fingers. He said, children loved him. Adults were so affected by him that they just wanted to touch his clothes. And you have to ask why. And it was because they saw Jesus loved them. His love was extravagant, almost reckless, never cautious or timid. And he talked of his father's endless love. It was actually his favorite topic. The people of Jesus' day saw holy people in, in their day. They saw, him as, they saw holy people as unapproachable. It'd be as if, again, if we were to take this illustration and people were looking at the church or they'd watch you at work or they'd watch you in the school or, or in, in the government or different places that you may be in the neighborhood. They were the kind of people where they look at your life and they go, oh, yeah, they go to church and that person's not real approachable. It's the kind of holier than thou kind of thing. But Jesus wasn't that way. He says that, that people saw Jesus as not only holy, but he was approachable. Jesus met people where they were. Jesus made people feel welcome and they had a place. And his life was a constant demonstration that there were only two things that mattered in life. 
Think about it. There are only two things that matter in life. And you have to ask yourself, what were those two things? God and people. They were the only things that lasted forever. Jesus was good, but here's something you need to realize as well. When you really look at the life of Jesus and you see how attractive he was, there were also people who saw his goodness and yet didn't like it. People were offended with Jesus because he violated their understanding of religion and piety. She asked this question, what do you do with a man who is supposed to be the holiest man who has ever lived and yet goes around talking with prostitutes and hugging leprous outcasts? What do you do with a man who not only mingles with the most unsavory people, but actually seems to enjoy them? The religious accused him of being a drunkard, a glutton, and having tacky friends. I like that, tacky friends. It is a profound irony that the Son of God visited this planet and one of their chief complaints against him was that he was not religious enough. Is that amazing? Honestly, think about it. God in flesh shows up and there's people around him who are holier than thou. They're really the people of the church of his day, the Pharisees, and their only complaint about him is that he's just not religious enough. But he's going around, and, and if you read what Peter has to say about him, I love the way Peter describes him in, in, in his, as he meets with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, verses, in verses 34 through 38. But I'm going to give you just a snippet of it. Peter says to Cornelius, you know what has happened throughout Judea. The word has spread, Cornelius. Even though you live up in Caesarea, which is a kind of a, up north, east, uh, west, uh, away from where all the action was, you've heard about it. He says, you know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached. Here, listen to these words. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And my prayer for us and for me, is that God would anoint us with the Holy Spirit and power. That we would get sick and tired of trying to do in our flesh and in our own strength what can only be done in God's strength. Because you know when you get to that place, God shows up and everyone knows it was God and not anybody here. How God anointed Jesus and with Holy Spirit and power. And I wrote in my little cash, and please do this for us, God. Anyway, and how Jesus went around, listen to this, I underline this, doing good. Doing good. And I want to make it very clear. I am not in any way suggesting that our good works save us. I want you to hear this so clearly. You are not any more accepted before God because you do a bunch of good things. Your acceptance is based fully on the fact that God was good to you, that he loved you, that he sent the son, that he sought after you in the midst of your own turning away from him. Maybe you didn't think about him or maybe you were beginning to have the spirit begin to work in your heart. But God in his goodness reached out and he grabbed hold of you. You experienced his goodness. And because you've experienced his goodness, Titus is saying... Go and do the same. Ask God for the Holy Spirit and anointing of power on your life and go out and do good. For the sake of other people who need to be touched by God's goodness through you. So let's take a moment and stop and reflect on this. Was there one consciously good thing? I'm not asking you to get self-righteous about this, because sometimes you get conscious about your things. You know, it's like, let your left hand not know what your right hand is doing. But we need to do this for a moment. Was there one consciously good thing you did last week, and it stands out? Is there one person who could have observed your life and who could have said, boy, that's attractive. I, I want that. Is there another believer you observed where you might be able to give them a note? 
and just encourage them and say, boy, I saw you do this and that was really good. Or a phone call. Or an email. Or a pat on the back. Is there someone that you may need to rebuke or correct? I didn't write this in my notes, but I, I want to share this. I shared it with the first service. I shared it with you as well. This whole idea of being open to correction is something we all need to be. Um, this idea that we are not here to try and protect our own little kingdoms and, and, and to live in our insecurities, but we need to be people who, are open our, who open ourselves up and, and allow trusted, safe people in to help us become more like God. Someone told me just a couple days ago, and then I've had people about a week ago, have said, Pastor, you speak too fast. No, you guys, just, you, you just don't listen fast enough. That's the defensive response to that. Not my problem. John, just listen faster. No, you know what? That's an area I go, you know what? I want to be good, not for my sake. Because God is so good to me and I want his goodness to flow through me. So if there's any way I can be more effective, I want to be that way. Let's be like that. Let's be the kind of people that when we live around the people that we work, they look at us and they don't see us as, as people who, who supposedly got everything together and we're so good and, and we live higher. And, you know, we, are, you need, we are no better than any person next to us anywhere. Prostitute, drunk, you name it. We are good merely because a God is so good and so loving that he reached down and he said through Jesus, I love you so much that I want to have a relationship with you. And in that relationship where you open your life up and you open yourself up to say, God, because you love me so much, I can hear your good and I can hear it through other people. Then you allow God to create within you a goodness that has to pour out to other people. And so that's when I move into this point that that um, in chapter three, verse one and verse two is essential for us as a church to hear. I have been praying and saying, God, what is it that we're to do? What is it that we're to be about? And it's very clearly that God has gifted us in some tremendous ways with different ministries here. We have had impact as a body overseas in the world around us in incredibly wonderful ways. But one of the things that I believe God is saying and has laid on my heart that I want to lay on your heart as well is God is saying in this chapter in verses one and two, we're to be good citizens. We're to be people who are so engaged and connected in our community that our community looks at us. They see the goodness. They feel the goodness. They experience the goodness and they go, I want some of that. You can say, amen. They, you know, it's true. So Paul gets specific for a moment to, to Titus, and he, he wants to address everybody. He's, he's dressed the old, the young, the men, the women, the employees, the employers. He's dressed everybody. But now he says, everybody, I want you to pay a particular attention to this. Let your life be guided by these character traits. And he lists specific ones in that context that they needed to hear because in their context, there were things that they weren't living out. He would, as a pastor, and if Paul was here, he might say Totally different things to us here. But the, the general caption, you've got to get the idea of it, is that we are to be the kind of people who are these good citizens, in this sense, living within our community, a little platoon, a little community within a community. I'm talking too fast. Okay. 
that is really making a difference in every home and in every business in every place we go and recognizing and I'm the first to raise my hand that I don't have my act together but I want God to put it together and and I read that and Paul gets really specific he lists seven traits of a good citizen if you look at this verse, two are in relationship to the government. The middle one, the third one, is one that connects the government one to the one of merely being good citizens in your community. He says, first, be subject to rulers and authorities. Voluntarily submit your will. It involves willingly subjecting yourself to the authority figures. It's the opposite is, is to rebel, whether it's active or passive. Cretans were known for their disrespect toward the government and their leaders. And so Paul had to write this. Be reverent toward your leaders. It doesn't matter if it's Obama or Clinton or McCain. I don't care. In this time of government, we need to be respectful of any person who is running for office. And then he goes, not only is respect... In fact, if you read Romans 13, 7, Paul writes it, he writes it a little differently. He says, give everyone what you owe him. If you owe him taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And do it with a submissive heart. And then he says, be obedient. And the implication is to your rulers and authorities. Be model citizens. And then, I like this, he just kind of has this little connective here. He says, be ready to do whatever is good. I just, it's like spring-loaded goodness, man. Pitch in, help out. If you see an opportunity, get in there and do it. If the food shelf at Interfaith says we are empty, we better step in and help. That's the idea. That we are, you are spring-loaded for goodness. When you're in the office and you're walking around, you're the kind of person that when there's the opportunity, it springs out because it's a part of who you are. It's what God is establishing in you. And so he, he says, be ready to do whatever is good. At a moment's notice, be good. Be ready to pitch in. Slander no one. Watch your tongue. Being a good citizen in your community begins by what you say. About what you say about school board members. About what you might say about city officials. About what you might say about the neighbor on the block. A good citizen doesn't slander people. Period. And now he goes on and he says, not only is it about slander... But he talks about, and he takes it a step further. Not only are we not to say bad things, but we are to be peaceable. Not merely do we keep from abusive and divisive language, but from your heart you seek to bring peace. You, be a, you become a peacemaker. I've had some people who work with peacemaker ministries here who want to meet with me. I can't wait. At some point we'll meet. And we are going to do some, at some point a series on what it means to be peacemakers, to reconcile. What does it mean to live that way? Because we may as a body have to do some of that. Be considerate. Be gentle, kind, don't stubbornly insist on your way or your rights, but be courteous, be big-hearted, is how he says it. And then, this is the one that undergirds it all. Show true, genuine, authentic, real humility toward everybody. Just because a person you may be at a work as an administrative assistant or a custodial staff or something, you are no better. True humility is that sense where you place yourself in a place where you look and you go, I'm that servant. We may have our roles and we need to keep those defined, but I'm your servant before Christ. Be attractive. Attractively good people. Not merely good citizens, 
But I would challenge us to be great ones. And as a church, as a collection of good citizens, a community with this community, we'd be great citizens in a great community within this community making a difference. At a moment's notice, spring-loaded to be good, prepared to jump in, whether it's in the community, at work, at school, around the house, guys. Come on, women, you're supposed to go, yes. Um, Prove to the world that Christ followers are not merely a bunch of holier-than-thou, good-for-nothings. But we are so holy that we're good for everybody. The church is to be a visibly good force in the community. As Jesus said, you, you are. You are the light of the world. So let your light so shine before men that they see what? Your good works. And they can't help but say, praise God. Praise God. I want to read to you uh, the journey of of a pastor who was the one I was quoting in the beginning of this. He writes a book called The Church of Irresistible Influence, and they've been on this irresistible influence movement. He basically says there's two models of the church today. One model designs itself around strategy for meeting the needs of its own members. Certainly there's some validity to this approach. We need to meet needs of people. However, eventually needs become wants, and the us is all that matters, and self-absorption rarely can see beyond the borders of the own church property. The second model centers on the concept of success and thrives on size. What drives this church is a bigger and better mindset. Heavy emphasis is placed on more members, bigger buildings, budgets, and multi-staff payrolls. Indeed, healthy churches should be growing, but too often these large churches remain strangers to the very communities in which God has placed them and which they're supposed to serve. And as we start to struggle with this, and as God increases... People here, that's the thing I'm struggling with, with the elders. And what I'm struggling with is we put a task force together, think about long-term and interim growth, and what does that mean? Is how, What are we going to be? He says that they started as a church, patterned themselves as fellow, after Fellowship Church, Bible Church in Dallas. This church, Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. He said they began in 1977 with 18 members, and they saw the church grow to about 1,000 people. And, and the characteristics that they had in this church, the vision was that they would live authentic, real lifestyles with a heart for God, with centrality on the Bible, moral purity, healthy homes, bold evangelism, and responsibility socially. So that after 12 years of focusing on authentic spirituality and Christian lifestyles, church members, listen to this, grew to 1,000 church members felt stagnation setting in. Isn't that interesting? So they paid attention to the Spirit of God. He writes, it was as if we were all dressed up and had no clue where we were supposed to go. Unless we made readjustments to our vision, we ran the risk of losing our dreams. So they made readjustments, they tweaked it, and they began to equip believers for service within their community around the world. And they saw God do some incredible things as as many began to serve in in different ministries and in different places. But then at one point, some of the people had this sense of needing to stop and to pause. They called it a holy pause where they listened to the Spirit of God because they were doing these things, but they still felt like there's something God wanted them to hear. And they said, we experienced phenomenal growth during these years with over 3,500 attending each week, and everything seemed to be going so well. Then someone haunted us with this question, which caused us to pause. Is our community within which, where we live really being transformed? And they said they were kind of like, 
They had to stop. And in that pause, God began to talk to them about being a church that makes an influence right where they live. And they began to ask this question. He says, how can a church ever influence a whole city? They were thinking of Little Rock, Arkansas. How can one church influence a whole city for the kingdom? And then he wrote, it can't. It can never do it alone. Even a megachurch like theirs has become, represented only a small percentage of the body of Christ. But what could happen, he began to pray, and so did the leaders, if churches ventured together in efforts to build bridges to the community. We discovered that nothing brings congregations together better than prayer and good works. Through these two changes, members of many churches began to see themselves as one church in that area, the church, working and praying together for kingdom impact. And he says, what began as a reluctant participation with pastors in a four-day prayer retreat resulted in the most genuine movement of the Holy Spirit. And and catch this. Whereas prayer became the catalyst for a new unity between our churches, good works have become a catalyst for building a new credibility within our community. Catch that. Where prayer became the catalyst to bring about a unity among the pastors and churches, it was the doing of good that became the catalyst for building a credibility, a new credibility within the whole area of Little Rock. And what happened is they had this, uh, came together that one time and they did what they called a share fest. They did 105 service projects that each of the churches began to do and take on. They actually renovated a church in the part, heart of Little Rock, uh, I mean a school in the heart of Little Rock, and, and redid the whole thing and gave money that the government didn't have to give. And they saw incredible change besides all kinds of other service projects, and they're still doing it today. And I just read that and I say, what does it mean for us to be good citizens? Well, we need to do this individually right where we live. But I want us to pray in this time as God is working. What does it mean for us as a small platoon, as community within this community to spill out goodness to all the people that live around us? I'm going to ask you just to pray. We're going to just bow our heads and hearts and for a moment just allow the Lord to speak to us. Father, would you take these words and begin to apply them to our hearts as we, in a moment, sing this song. We ask, God, that you would be the hand that moves us. In Christ's name, amen.